Welcome to the underground. Turn me up, bitch! My Little Underground with Peter A. When I had the college radio, I would be... I did a show 10 a.m. to 12, and I'd be the only one in the entire building. So when I, have a, when I had a guest come in, I would bring Mike with me, Smiley, uh-huh. and I'll have him run downstairs and let the people in. But there, there were times I hated that shit. There were times where he would bring people in, and then while I'm doing a live mic break, people would start chattering underneath the press. Uh-huh. They don't understand that like I'm live on the air, so it was. Uh, yeah. I don't even want to. Anxiety from talking about something like that. <laughs> anyway, it's level 44, my little underground. I'm Peter A. Celebrating two years of this great podcast known as My Little Underground, and don't forget to subscribe Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get podcasts. I'm there. I'm on Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram. It's Peter underscore A. You can follow the show as well at MLU Pod, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube as well. Now, usually on this here show, I bring people from the outside to come down here to the underground, but I want to kick off 2020 in a special way by bringing people from my inside to your outside, if that makes any sense. I'm talking about the man behind the boards who engineers most of my podcasts when I'm not doing it in my kitchen. My man, Mike Javasa, is right here right in front of me. What's up, Mike? Hey, what's going on? So Mike is a producer, engineer, runs this gorgeous studio. Shelter Island Sound. Well, this portion of Shelter Island Sound. Yes. Um, and you interned here, right? Correct. You have a lot of history here. So mm-hmm. um, you were in college when you started interning here or what? No, What's the it, story? It was, uh, I, I went to Hofstra. Yes. Um, and I went there for audio radio. And it was really kind of, um, you know, geared more towards radio. And I really wanted to be in the studio. So I kind of like just dropped out of there and... Uh, my actually my dad found this program called the recording connection where they um basically they hook you up with an internship at a studio and uh the studio they sent me to was shelter island sound here uh under steve adabo who is a absolute master and uh he was my mentor i was the apprentice so that was back in 2008 and pretty much yeah, I just kind of worked my way up the ranks, uh, you know, proved myself. And I took everything I was learning from him and kind of applied it to my own setup. And that became Continental Recording Studio, which is the first place I recorded you at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. L-I-C. Yeah. yeah. And so then basically uh, uh, last year, 2019, I made the move back here when this room became available to Shelter Island Sound. And Steve's still here and I'm still, you know, kind of doing doing my thing but now i'm just in the center of manhattan as opposed to long island city (laughs) a beautiful facility with some great engineers (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. so you you came in uh as an intern from shelter island from you wanted to did you want to learn from a musician standpoint because you're also a punk Mm semi-automatics which we'll talk about um Music or from a musician standpoint or an engineer standpoint or from a music business point of view or an amalgamation of all three? Well, it's uh, a good question. It, uh, it actually all ties in because really my love of recording started with Semi-Automatics, which was um, my high school punk band. Um, 
so we started that back in 2002, I believe. It went through a few different name changes. But basically, you know, we formed, we rehearsed, we wrote songs, we played shows. And then when it came time to record, I kind of just gravitated towards being the guy that, you know, wanted to do the recording. And when we first recorded, we just kind of did it with a few mics through like a Tascam Porta Studio at um, our friend Greg's house, who now now he's in the band. He actually joined the band later in high school, and then we kind of fell off, and then when we reformed, he's back with us again. But we recorded that music, you know, with, with limited resources and with, um, you know, basically just crappy mics, a few crappy mics and some, you know, a Tascam Porta studio. And that was like, from that point on, I just fell in love with it. And then actually... So I did that for a while, and then we went into a studio at this guy's place on Long Island. Uh, I was, like, at his house, but it was, like, more of a proper studio. It had, like, control room, live room kind of set up. And that was when I really was like, this is what I want to do with my life. <laughs> and I was, like, probably about, at that point, like, 15, 16. So, you know, I always knew I wanted to do that. And then when it got time to go to college, it was, like, um, that was, what, 04? And they really didn't have as much in the recording field as they do now. I mean, they have a good recording program at Nassau Community. They've had that for a while. They've had SAE for a while. Um, but the resources weren't like they are now. It's like if you were trying to go to like a university or a college, they they were very limited with the recording classes. So now it's much more of an accessible degree. Um, but I digress. So, <laughs> yeah. What was the question again? <laughs> Well, you know, basically, like, what kind of brought you in here? Oh, Almost, oh yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I essentially did want to learn the um, the technical aspect of it because I wanted to record. I just love – I fell in love with the art. Yeah, because so. you're, you're in a band and you're like, okay, um, how do I make this work to make my band work? Well, kind right? of, but, but by the point I got here, that was, like, why I originally fell in love with recording and why I started doing it. But when I got to Shelter Island Sound, by that point – um, yeah, I didn't, I, the band wasn't together anymore. So it was more to, to learn how to do this as a career. Cause it's like, I just knew that's what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> so yeah, that was the goal was to learn the technical aspects and Steve taught me well. <laughs> what was, uh, some of the most, um, important lessons that you've learned from the studio? Like, was it for you to, oh, let me get a job in recording, let me get a job in live sound, let me mix people's sessions, or let me run my studio? Which way were you trying to go? Um, I really, I guess I didn't, I, I wanted to own a studio, I, I wanted to run a studio, and um, that kind of was my goal, to learn how to do that. And I really did learn that from Steve, because I took everything that he was teaching me and just applied it to my own situation. And it happened organically, because... Um, Around 2008, we also moved out to Brooklyn. Me and my brother moved in with our friend Nick and our friend Doug, and we were living out on Manhattan Ave in Greenpoint, and we needed a rehearsal space. So we we found this rehearsal space, and it was just like, you know, it was basically it was like it was on Greenpoint Ave, right, you know, right by the uh, right by the water over there, right by the East River. And there was a recording studio and they had um, rehearsal rooms. And basically they were just like 
they would stick the bands in the rehearsal rooms. You didn't like you would pay a few hundred bucks a month and then there'd be two other bands that they put in there. And so I had amassed a lot of recording equipment by this point. Not a lot, but, you know, enough to I, I moved that in and I started recording our stuff in the rehearsal space. And now other bands that were renting with us start to hear what we were doing, like what I was doing with the recording and with our, our music, and they asked me to record them. And that's kind of how it snowballed. After that, it just I just kept applying everything. Like I'd be coming in to Shelter Island Sound like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, assistant engineering with Steve or like if another engineer would come in, like Nick Sansano came in a few times, Bob Powers on this floor, um, Mark Dearnley came in. I think I'm saying that right. He did uh, ACDC, Highway to Hell. So, like, I'd be assisting guys like that, learning all these tricks and techniques and how they do it and kind of just applying that. And at the same time, I was starting to build clients. And that's pretty much – so it snowballed into the situation I wanted it to be in. And, yeah, it just – I mean, Continental was a great – you know, we did a great thing there, I felt. So. Yeah. Yeah. So your your clientele is building up, and mm-hmm. at this point, you you want to start your own space. Right? Yeah. Do you have a space yet at this point? We we were just in that rehearsal spot, and basically, we asked the studio. They they had their main studio was like upstairs in that building, and then the rehearsal spaces were like ground floor, and so there were two right next to each other. They were nice. They had like wood floor, concrete walls. Um, there was like drywall between them. And we asked them if they could put a window between them and we could rent it as a control room, live room. And they asked for like kind of an outrageous, well, it's like what I thought was an outrageous price at the time. But I think looking back on it, it was probably pretty reasonable. But we were paying like, you know, $200, $300 rehearsal space. And then they wanted like, I don't know how much for the two complete rooms. And um, so we were like, I knew I wanted a control room, live room. So I was like, let's let's find another situation. And then there's a long saga as to how we ended up. We we ended up in Long Island City in a uh, this Empire Rehearsal Studio was called, and we had them build us a little control room, live room, and they did it. And we ended up there for a few years, a couple of years, and then the spot in Long Island City that you went to, that really became Continental. That. That happened much – that was like 2011 or 12 by the time that happened, 2011, I think. And, uh, yeah, so basically it kind of all, you know, moved towards that that direction. <laughs> so, um, you know, who's coming in to Continental? Who are you recording? At that at time? This point? Yeah. Um, at that point, so – well, by the time I guess we were at the, the first – spot in Long Island City with the control room live room that was like 2009 2010 to 2011 12 like around that area during that time is when you know it was it was all underground artists it was people I would find on Craigslist um, I would just go hustle you know go out to shows meet people and pretty much um, then there was the band that w- the first band we recorded um, in there it was kind of like they were called Indians and they had like this kind of MGMT sound and we did some pretty great stuff. And that, that took place in the first spot and then it kind of like word of mouth snowballed. So I ended up recording, you know, pretty much mostly underground rock, underground hip hop. I started to really get involved with. And, um, so basically, uh, around that time that I was in that, 
that first Long Island City spot, I um, I recorded a band called Highway Gimps. And so they, they were like part of this Brooklyn underground punk scene. And that record was great. We, we had a great time making it. Um, they released it and everyone in the scene loved it. So after that, it was just like pretty much that whole scene became like I started recording all kinds of bands out of that scene. Um, that included the Brooklyn What, I did their record, Hot Wine. Um, I did Let Me Crazy's record, Eponymosity, which they released post-breakup, unfortunately, but it was a great record, great band. Um, so it, it started to grow into these like more notable underground like bands and uh, pretty much kind of stayed that way for a long time. <laughs> Probably till about 2000, it was 2018, and I got, like, um, Mr. Wives in there. And so we did a, a song called um, Why, Why, Why. So that got released in 2019, um, and that was, like, on Fueled by Ramen. That was pretty wow. much, yeah, the first, like, big label thing that I had brought in there. And it kind of was the culmination of Continental. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> everything you did before. Yeah. So, um you really didn't have a lot of formal training in recording, right? Well, that, as far it, as being in here, it all it all came from from Steve, really, because right. part of the program was that they would give you formal training. I mean, right. there was like when I was like, at you Hofstra, didn't go to a school, you didn't go to like a conservatory or anything like that. No, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. When I was at Hofstra, I had um, there was some studio classes there, but. The stuff they were formally teaching you, with air quotes, yeah. was I already knew it by the time I got there because I was I was reading so much prior to going to Hofstra. So like I kind of like would just walk in, and they'd be like, "All right, we're gonna show you how to set up a drum kit today," and I already know how to do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what are you reading at this point? Uh, it was actually the textbook that we ended up using here at um, at Shelter and those like the lessons for um, the recording connection. It was called like modern recording techniques, and then also my friend put me on to um, record. Uh, what's it called? Sweetwater. Back in the day, they had uh, this whole section, and it was like uh, audio tips and tricks, stuff like that. And so basically, I was kind of that was when I was like fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, and I pretty much read all of it, like every bit of like. They had like a glossary of all different terms, recording terms. They had um, just all different techniques and tips, gear tips and everything. And I just pretty much read all of that. <laughs> so uh, when you're recording artists, at first, what are you doing? Are you just setting up their mics? You're just uh, recording from uh, what Pro Tools, I'm assuming? Or, when I first started, what? you mean? Or? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, when I... You're talking like when I like in the beginning it was like uh, I had like a first my buddy had that uh, Tascam Porta Studio yeah we used that and then the next thing was like once I kind of expressed to my parents that I was interested it was like Christmas or something what do you want and I was like I want a, something to record on so I got like a digital like a cord digital recorder and that had like a little mixer on it so you could like record multi track and. I, w I used that for a while, and then kind of once I got to Shelter Island Sound, they had, like, um, Pro Tools was starting to become a little bit more accessible. You know, before that, it, like, when I first started, when I was, like, 15, we're talking, like, 2000, it's, like, Pro Tools was not accessible unless you were, like, you know, 
a studio or so. You you had to spend money on it. I didn't have money at that age. So. Of course. Not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, you know, I know when you're recording people like like my brother, for example, you're not just hitting record. You're kind of helping them uh, produce in a way. Is that true? It it depends on the you know it um really on the job. If if I'm hired as a producer, or if the artist gives me any leeway or, or expresses to me that they want my input, then yeah, I'll definitely help them out with that. Uh, if there's a producer in the session, you know, sitting there guiding it, and I'm just the engineer, then all I'm doing is making sure everything sounds good. If I hear an off pitch, I might bring it up to them, uh, but I wouldn't interject, you know, because that's like a kind of don't feed the animals kind of situation. You want to just be there making making it happen while the producer makes those decisions. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, it's it all it's all tied together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah. So when you're uh, recording artists, um, are you learning anything from them? Or what have you learned from recording certain artists? I've learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, it really, when I look back on it, um, you know, I, I kind of came into the whole thing from punk rock background. So when I was younger, I was very into, like, rock and metal and punk and, you know, anything with guitars. I never really listened to much hip-hop. Um, definitely didn't listen to much pop. And basically, when I first started working with hip-hop was kind of when my sound started to change because I started to, like, listen and be like, well, their drums sound very, like, fat and they sound very, like kind of bombastic or like you know some kind of like they, they're very vibrant and then like i'm like listening to the drums i'm recording and i'm like it sounds very like stiff and thin and it sounds like it, if you're closing your eyes and you're looking at a drum kit but then if i listen to like and like back in the day it would be like nirvana or alice in chains their drums sound like huge so then i started taking like techniques that i was using in like hip-hop mixes and stuff and applying them in you know uh, rock mixes and vice versa. So I, you know, it, it kind of went the same for uh, across the board with genres because then I started working with different people trying to do pop music or classical music or jazz. And I started taking different techniques and different things that I would learn from those sessions and apply them to other genres, like apply like, you know, a rock technique to a jazz mix and like might not work, but just try it, you know? Um, and I've just kind of, you know, I guess learned that, you know, there's there's kind of um, greatness in everybody. And there's like, you know, a kind of constant that goes through any session I do, whether it's big or small. Um, you know, we're kind of all trying to achieve the same thing. And there's like a level of talent that is, is there within everybody. And I've, I've kind of learned that from working with a very wide variety of people because I see get to see the talent in all these different people. I, I mean, that's a good point because uh, I was listening to a podcast. It was Rick Rubin and Andre 3000. And Andre 3000 said that to, to make your genre better, it's good to listen to other genres. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Outkast did that, you know, almost the best. They, they took from totally different sounds and made their own thing. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I think that's cool that you have, you've helped them. Um, you know, you've you've taken something from everything, which is interesting. So, um, you know, you've named some like underground bands that you've worked with. Like, what what hip hop acts have you wor worked with from an underground level to a more, you know, mainstream level? What? 
Um, break it down. Break it down. Uh, so there's this guy that was an early hip-hop client of mine. Um, let's see. He stuck with me for a while. His name was Dub Lights. So we did uh, a whole record called um, The Legal Way Out. So that was, I, I can't remember exactly what year that came out. I want to say 2010. Um, so we did that. We did um, we did quite a few singles. And uh, those those came out great. He's worth checking out. Uh, <clears throat> Dub Lights, D-U-B-B-L-I-T-E-S, Dub Lights. Uh, I worked with him for a long time. And then I'm working with a guy now named Profit, P-R-O-F-H-I-T, Profit. Yeah. Uh, so... Yeah, I'm, I'm working with him a lot lately. We have a whole record that we're working on. Um, you're producing, you're engineering? I'm engineering, or? you know. Okay. There's definitely a lot of leeway in terms of, like, like what I've been able to do on that record. You know, I've been able to kind of um, get in there and kind of play around with the beats and arrangements and stuff. He's, he's kind of given me a lot of um, leeway with that, and it's I think the results are sounding great. Um those are two that come to mind right away. And then a lot of them are, you know, guys that just come in, um, do a track or two for like, you know, SoundCloud. And, you know, I've had plenty of guys like that. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. At the end of last year, once I moved to shelter, my kind of clientele started to go up a little bit. So I got the opportunity to work with Razelle from the roots, um, and young dirty bastard, uh, Wu Tang. So yeah, yeah. those have been, uh, you know, two two awesome clients to work with, and we worked on a couple tracks that I expect to come out this year. So we'll, we'll see. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. That's cool. <laughs> um, you know, I'm glad you brought SoundCloud up because I feel like there's a lot of artists that are taking the DIY approach to recording mm -hmm. and not necessarily going into studios to kind of just recording wherever they can or maybe you know when they get some money they record you know out of their homes um where do you see studio recording going in the future that's a like what question. we're doing right now <laughs> yeah yeah no because it's it's true i mean you the results you can get at home and like a lot of these plugins they have out there now that are like one one knob one button and you just you put it on your your audio and it sounds good um, those are definitely making it a tough career to, to, uh, to pursue. But, um, I mean, for the most part, especially in New York city, uh, people can't have a drum kit in their, you know, apartment. So the big room across the hall here, we can do a drum kit. We have a, a grand piano. Um, I mean, Steve's got legendary gear to legendary room. So that draws a lot of people in, but, um, the general studio, the value of the studio, I think, when you walk into one of these places, besides, like, the technically, you know, great-sounding rooms, uh, it's also the expertise you get, you know? And, like, you're working with people... I know when I first started, like, at the very beginning of my career, something that may have taken me, like, six hours back then, now I can do in, I don't know, like, probably minutes, you know? It's like... So I'm able to, to do a lot of things very fast... That, like, when you're working on it at home, you're capable of getting great results, absolutely. But it's probably going to take a lot longer. And for some people, it doesn't. And those people are the people that record at home, and you don't see them in the studio. But there's definitely plenty of people out there that still require our expertise here. <laughs> I think 
you know, there's a lot of benefits of going to the direct to SoundCloud approach, mm-hmm. you know, because again, it's DIY. You can do it yourself. You can get things to people instantly. We live in that age. Absolutely. But uh, from my perspective, from a podcasting perspective, I think recording in a neutral space like a studio has a layer of professionalism to it. Like if I if I bring somebody to my house to record, you know, yeah. And, there's a level of intimacy there that's like, you know, I'm not ready for because I don't, I don't know the guests that's coming <laughs> yeah. in. You know, I just know the work they do. But there is something to recording DIY. Like, like I said, you know, for me at least, if I'm recording by myself, yeah, I'm going to set up a mic and just hit record see what happens. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's freedom to that. You don't, you're not, you know, you don't have a, a set time. Um, you know, you're not paying. You're not paying on the hour. But... You know, when you come to a studio, again, you have that professionalism. You know, people can see, wow, you're the real deal. You're not just some some dude, you know, just recording whatever, just for whatever. Mm. You know what I mean? So, you know, um, again, with in regards to, like, technology, kind of switching gears a little bit, um, what are some new uh, studio technology that, that you're seeing taking place? Because, again... Back in the day, with the in the eighties, you know, more people were using more digital mm-hmm. uh, approaches to music. Is there any other kind of new age recording methods that you've seen that may take place in the future or, or now? Anything you've seen at conventions or whatever? Yeah, I mean, um, they ever a lot of people seem to be moving towards uh, kind of like, I guess, embracing touch screen and stuff like that. Um, I mean, these days that when it comes to like the advances that I've seen since I started doing it, I mean, cause I was kind of born into the digital world. When I started, yeah. I didn't learn on tape except for like that task cam cassette thing, but that's not really tape. I, I learned pretty much on digital and really that has been my medium as long as I've been doing this. And when I started to now the, the advances they've made to make the, the sound quality gap between digital and analog it's like there's no gap at this point digital almost sounds better at this point and they have like all kinds of tape saturation plugins so you could put a tape plugin on your digital signal and now it sounds like it was on a tape machine so just closing that gap because like like when i started it, it was it was a big discussion amongst engineers like some hated digital some like embraced digital right away and said this is the future and you know and so that was a big argument for a long time and now that argument doesn't even exist like no one really talks about like you know how how much better analog is than digital it's all it's all kind of morphed into a hybrid system much like what you we're working on here today you know with an analog console and analog gear going to a digital um where digital is like your tape machine almost so you would say um, well, or would you say that, well, from, to my knowledge, a lot of people that I've talked to, a lot of like, you know, audiophiles have said that uh, FLAC is like the, the highest quality of digital sound. Is that true or no? Um, well, that's kind of a tough question to answer because really like the highest quality, like what we're working on is we're working with wave, with a wave file and you can have a wave file go up to like 192k i think maybe even higher at this point um you know and and so when you're listening on a cd you're listening to maybe a wave file that's 44.1k 16-bit as opposed to we're working in 24-bit so when you convert that 
that 24-bit 48K WAV file to FLAC, there's no loss. Like when you when you convert the 24-bit 48K WAV file to a 16-bit 44-1K WAV file, there's a little bit. Actually, no, that there's no loss. I can't say that. But if you go to like an MP3, then you're going to experience loss of quality. So the FLAC is like full quality, lossless. So uh, I don't know if I would say it's the best. It's pretty much the same as like a you know a full 96K 24-bit WAV file, pretty much. So what are the different types of lossless audio? There's there's Wave, yeah. AIFF. Yeah. Um, iTunes uses AAC. Yeah, but that's it's not lossless. It's not lossless. No, because oh, okay. they convert it from, uh, you know, because like the, the the files have to be small enough for people to be able to stream it, to transmit it, like you know, to to download it, and it's in your um, library instantly. So they they make it a smaller file, basically. So. As far as I'm aware, it's lossy. You could get the Apple Digital Masters, and that's pretty much as close as you're going to get to uh, lossless, like on on iTunes. <laughs> so, if we rank streaming audio mm-hmm. like the way it is, Spotify Premium, Apple Music, title, and lossless AIF or it was AIFF, right? Mm-hmm. And FLAC, and then uh, vinyl. Where do you rank the three? Vinyl's gonna sound the best, yeah, because uh, it's you know, it's kind of especially if it's from tape to vinyl, or when when you master something and you give them a digital file for vinyl at this point, you're gonna give them the 24 bit, whatever, you know, um, sample rate uh, it is. You're gonna give them that. Like if it's a nine, if you worked in 96k the whole time, that was your resolution, and then you. You this is getting so nerdy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you give that the the mastering guys that and then they they prepare that for distribution. They give that to um to the vinyl printers. They're printing it at the highest, you know, from the highest quality. So then the streaming is they have high quality streaming, which sounds pretty good. And lossless is probably better, I would say, quality than that, than the streaming and then down, you know, to MP3s is like the worst thing yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so do you think um at least in, in this decade that i guess maybe the music industry controls this like how well i don't know if they control like how people consume stuff um do you think that we're gonna get music streaming is going to evolve or we're gonna get high quality audio files that we're able to listen to on a phone I you feel know like I mean? streaming's gonna evolve. Streaming, okay. If you get audio files high quality, I think the evolution there is probably gonna be like cloud based, like where you can have these lossless files that are you know bigger file sizes, but the internet's gonna become so fast, and with five G or whatever next G's they come out with, it's going to to make it so you can access those files in the cloud like really fast, even though they're big. Because that's the problem right now is that the internet isn't fast enough for you to be like sitting there downloading like a full album of like 96k files and it's going to take up a lot of space on your phone you know so if they had that up in a cloud you would probably experience buffering or just use up a ton of your you know mobile data or something (laughs) do you think the age of downloading a file or files and then putting on a device is is gone i don't know if it's gone but i think it's gonna be (laughs) i think so yeah i think more people might you know, I think more people buy vinyl than have a digital file on their phone. Probably, you yeah. Know? Because iTunes has gone away. 
It's yeah, all, it's all Apple, Apple Music. music. Yeah. yeah. But they're still record stores. Yeah. Isn't that true. fucked up? That's crazy. Yeah. That's unbelievable. I mean, I still Sorry. I still love uh, you know, having a um a physical product in my hands. I love the artwork. Um you know, I just love I love everything about like vinyl records and just general, you know, music merchandise. <laughs> yeah. So I, I would hate to see that go away. But um, you know, I guess some issues that come with, with streaming and not having the the album or song just ready to to go is just like your service. Your inner your your service like especially taking a long hour railroad every day for me. It's like sometimes like Spotify will cut out or it wouldn't it wouldn't load the the song. Like the part like I'm listening to a song the other day and five seconds of it play and then it stops. Mm-hmm. And I have a full signal, but it just stopped. Maybe because my phone is shitty, but that's another thing. Well, that's the thing I think yeah. is, you, you know, uh, what's that? There's like a saying. It's like when the waters rise, like all the boats rise. You know what I mean? Like that. Like basically, there's top tier phones that are probably able to go under the East River and not lose that, <laughs> that signal. But I don't have one of those. <laughs> but eventually, you know, as those keep progressing, the the what becomes the bottom tier phones is all going to raise up to the point where it is all just fast enough to make it work. I don't yeah. know when that'll be, if that'll even happen. It's just that's my prediction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so from a from an engineering point of view, walk me through the process of mixing and mastering. Like what happens? Mixing, I or whoever's mixing will just take all of like when, when you're recording, you're recording multi track, you know. So you'll have a separate signal for a singer and a separate uh, you know, a separate microphone for um a drum, a separate microphone for a guitar. And then when you're mixing, you're going to blend those all together so they sound nice. And then when you master it, you basically take what you mix together and it's brought up to like industry standard levels. So when you're mixing, you're not sitting there trying to make it as loud as possible because then you'll just distort everything. You just want the blend to sound good. And then when you master, the mastering engineer concerns themselves with kind of bringing it up to the industry level. So um, a few things. What are you trying to to blend together? All of the tracks, yeah. or from a, a sonic perspective, to make things sound right on a, from a frequency level? It kind of both. You definitely can. Serve. It's all it's all tied together because like as you're mixing things together, if you just go into it and start playing with the levels, different things will happen. Whether you're like aware of it or not it'll basically like you know different frequencies from the different signals will start to interact with each other so if you know you have a vocal and it's in the same range as like a guitar one of them is probably is going to mask frequencies from the other so you may have to like use an equalizer to to change the characteristic of that sound in order to you know to make it so you can hear the vocal and you can hear the guitar and you make them both like clear and you know, you kind of then can creative, creatively use these different, you know, an equalizer deals with the frequencies. So you're very concerned with it during that time. But you're kind of trying to be artistic at the same time. <laughs> From mastering, what is industry level? What is an industry level of mastering? Um, that's a good question. It, well, it, it's not like uh, something that could easily, like I could give you numbers, but uh, I think the average person that might be listening to this is not really that interested in that but basically you want to make it like kind of 
as loud as the other stuff that's out there. There's a there's a kind of target that they try to hit. You don't want to over you know over squash it and make it too loud. Um, and you don't want it to be too quiet. And you you want it to be you're dealing with you know the brightness of it, the the punchiness of it. And if you put on your music and it's unmastered, and then you put on a mastered song from that you downloaded off Spotify or something or, or off uh, iTunes you're you don't want to you know you're going to hear the difference if it's unmastered once it's mastered it's kind of like it's just the same level you know the kind of same on the same level <laughs> so it's like it's loudness it's level of loudness it's more than that but that's a, a main part of it i mean someone that i work with said it really well um he said uh to try to make it like like a competitive you know to to make it competitive with what's out there so it's like it's you know it could be your your music could be as loud as the next thing in your genre but theirs might have more punch in the bass and yours maybe it it may not require more punch in the bass but if it should have that amount of punch in the bass and and some listeners not hearing it they're gonna it's gonna register with them as like unprofessional or like you know yes yeah i've well, sometimes when I listen to different artists, like back to back, like I'll take a, like an underground band from Long Island or Brooklyn or whatever, and then I'll put on like Tame Impala, for example. You hear the difference. You hear it. It's so sharp. It's like, whoa. Yeah. What What's going on here? You know, but a lot of it is probably economic because most people are not, well, I guess a lot of musicians can't afford to have their music mastered like Kevin Parker is able to do, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. You know, but I've heard underground groups that really mix their stuff very, very well. Like some people pay attention to that stuff. And I think those, that makes for a successful artist, in my opinion, for the long haul. Yeah. Stuff that, you know what I mean? Like you, you, you care about your sound, whatever that is. You care about how people are going to listen to it. That's what I tell, well, I don't really tell artists, but that's what I look for mm-hmm. when I listen to music. It's, would you listen to this in the car? Would you share this with people? Would you play this in front of people? If the answer, if you don't know the answer to that, maybe there's some work you have to do. Yeah, you know, you know, with your band, uh, Semi-Automatics, you know, you're you're a punk band. So, how do you stick out or try to stick out from the other from other punk bands? Um, if that makes any sense. Well, we have three guitars, <laughs> and. Uh, f- Four, four of us sing, so we kind of, I guess, I, I kind of came to a point with it where I, I did ask myself that question a lot, and I kind of, kind of, I, I came to a point of realization that what makes us us and what makes us stand out is just the combination of that group of people playing together, you know. So it's like, if you hear our music, we have an EP out there now, um, "Welcome to the Unknown," and we have a single out, and we have more on the way. Um, but if you listen to any of that stuff, like, hopefully it will stand out to you. I don't know, like, we don't try to do too much, you know, to do that. We just kind of be us and make the music we make. And I just try to do a really great, like, we recorded it at Continental, the the EP, and the, um, the single for that matter. And I did the mixing, and then we sent it out for mastering Talon Douches. And, um, I mean, to me, I was just going to... Like, I, I wanted it to sound like my favorite bands. So I wanted it to sound, like, on par with, like, Pennywise or, like, um, like the Bouncing Souls or any of those, you know, Rancid or something. 
Um, I think we use the interrupters as a uh, as a reference too. So I wanted it to sound like on par with that, and I think that maybe if I'm doing my job right, separates us from some of the more local bands, you know, because it's just. I mean, there's a lot of great local bands out there, and there's a lot of great recordings out there. I found that out in the, the whole playlisting processing process of this all. I found bands where I found out they record at home, and I'm like, this sounds incredible. And, I mean, you know, it's just, what is there, like 30,000 songs released a week or something on uh, Spotify? So it's like, how do you stand out from the white noise, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's, that question you asked is like such a... If you could figure that out, then you're in a good place. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a way to uh, not reinvent the wheel, but kind of uh, stick out anyway. Yeah. There's a band that I listen to. Uh, they're from New York, Answering Machine. Okay. And when I'm listening to them, I'm like, okay, this is this is a punk band, like as you would know. But they have a level of uh, of melody and and songwriting, and they're they're trying to put something together and not just kind of hit you with a streamline of mm-hmm. you know what i mean like a lot of classic punk records are just like boom right in your face yeah boom. just one two three 45 seconds in and out you're done and a lot of like minor thread are like mm. the best at that because they'll come at you 45 seconds straight edge but you get what they're saying yeah. and they're trying to put together a song too they have some melody like Ian mckay is always you know we love melody we love pop music and you know it's cool to see certain bands try to try to do that and yeah. a band like uh, a place very strangers former guests on the show mm-hmm. they have incredible they they sound incredible it's unbelievable like i would like i would play that back to back with like a big you know a big a bigger band you know um yeah it's all it just you know you just find your lane and and try to be the best at what you're doing in that space well there's something you, know? you said in that that i kind of feel like i i'm on a personal mission to tap into because um, you brought up like classic punk bands, you know, and I feel like with the sound that we have, it, it's like, I don't feel like there's a lot out there right now that really captures the spirit of that classic punk kind of sound. I mean, there's sure, I'm sure there is in the underground. I don't want to like make like, you know, some kind of sweeping generalization, but, um, you know, most most punk bands, I mean, Rancid kind of sounds like an old school punk band. They have their sound down. They've had it down for years. Um, Dropkick Murphys is a big influence on us. And I kind of feel like they've they did a lot to impact punk, but it kind of was also to keep that traditional sound alive. And I kind of feel like if you listen to a band like Pup, for example, they're great, but they kind of have a new sound. You know, they don't they don't sound like an old school punk band. So I think that's and that's great. It is great, but I think that's one thing for us that maybe does make us stand out is that we kind of are really trying to follow in the footsteps of, like, you know, the old school punk bands. A lot of our influences, like, you know, Ran- there's modern ones, Rancid, you know, Dropkick Murphys, but we're big into, like, The Clash, you know, The Ramones, all, all the old stuff, really. So we're kind of maybe trying to stand out by, like you said, like, not reinventing the wheel, but, like, doing something fresh, but staying true to like our roots like when we get together we pretty much just play and that's what comes out (laughs) yeah i mean there's there's nothing wrong with wearing your influences on your sleeve but you just can't put their whole shirt on 
Yeah, you know that's what I mean? a good. Yeah, that's that, that's a great uh, perspective. You sure. can have a patch on your jacket. Sure. Yeah. You know, you can have a rancid patch on your jacket or Pennywise. You can have a offspring patch on your jacket, but don't don't wear their don't jock their merch. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Don't well, don't take everything. You well, know? a great example is like Motorhead because apparently oh, yeah. Lemmy was a huge. Um, Ramones fan and they were trying to sound like the Ramones but if you listen to Motorhead it doesn't sound anything like the Ramones so Nirvana and the Pixies yeah and exactly. Sonic Youth yeah. same thing yeah it sounds nothing like it so it's like that's a big thing for us is like we're trying to sound like I said like in the end I'm trying to make something that like if if it shows up next to um, you know a bad religion song in a playlist someone's not like oh that sounds t- terrible they're like oh you know it just sounds like as good as everything else you're listening to yeah that's like that's like the kind of price of the of entry right there. It's like that that's your ticket to just like getting on the line now of being like judged by the general public, you know. And I like it, you know. I kind of I enjoy hearing feedback from people if they like it, if they don't like it. It's you know, I enjoy it because that's that's pretty much what we're setting out to do in the end is just make make music and you know make records and have fun with it. <laughs> You're not trying to make any critics happy. You're just yeah. making music for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's perks to critics being happy, but yeah, you can't think about that when you're making the music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And self-censorship. I think you're walking a line that's very hard to kind of stay on because you can either go on, okay, this band is just a ripoff of this band, or mm. you're just, again, like, like we were saying, you're inspired. You're just inspired by this group. And yeah. I feel like a band like, um, I've been listening to this new group called Dummy, and it's made up of members of Wild Honey, and they're very inspired by Stereolab. And then when I'm listening to this, I'm like, okay, I hear Stereolab. But you're not ripping off Leticia Sadie. Mm. You're not. You know, you, you're obviously, you obviously loved Pang, and you're just kind of playing it out. And I think, I think you know, with a band like yours, I think there, there's a, a space to do that with not just blatantly ripping off any group. Yeah. Um, so, got the punk. We have the, the studio. Um, the one thing I've always been, you know, conflicted about from an engineering standpoint is limiting and compression. And I know it's probably very hard to kind of define. So can you give your best, uh, you know, definition of what limiting and compression do? Well, um, limiting, okay. A compressor basically, well, you'll put it on your your sound, your signal, your source, and you have these things called ratios. So you'll see on a compressor, there's usually a setting four to one, two to one. So what that means is that once the signal crosses a certain threshold, it will take it like four decibels. It kind of, the compressor will squash it down. So it takes four decibels for it to sound like it's going, you know, one decibel over. So it'll kind of cut any decibel down by a quarter so if it goes a decibel over the uh, threshold the compressor will squish it down to a quarter decibel if that makes sense uh it basically tames the the uh dynamics of the signal it makes it like the louder parts quieter and then the makeup gain will make the quieter parts louder so if you have a singer and they're singing and you can't hear some words but then some words are way too loud it's what you do is you put a compressor on it and it'll kind of make the quieter words a little louder and make the louder words a little quieter and you use the various controls to make that happen so a limiter is basically a compressor with a very high um ratio so 
you'll set a, a ceiling and then like it won't go over that basically. So it's like an infinity to one instead of like four to one. So if the thing goes up, uh, you know, 50 decibels above the threshold, it's going to squash it down to, to that ceiling. Does it, it prevents distortion? It could create distortion actually. Oh, okay. It prevents distortion by clipping. That's what okay. a limiter does. So like if you put it on the end of your, your whole chain, that's usually, you know, um, kind of at the end of a mastering chain, it'll keep it from digitally clipping. But if you kind of don't do it right, you could distort the actual, you know, the signal that's coming in. You could cause like pumping or, you know, if a big, big bass hits and you have a limiter on it really squashing it, it'll turn down like the rest of the track when the when the bass hits. <laughs> so what what are what's some advice that you would have from for uh, an inspiring musician that may want to record with you or someone that wants to start engineering or start their own studio um if someone wants to record with me just reach out uh mm -hmm. i'm always taking projects uh i guess i'll we'll we'll be getting to my info at the end of the mm -hmm. the whole thing um yeah if, reach out i'm definitely accessible and you know like i said taking on new projects all the time if someone's looking to get into engineering just be ready for a tough road it's not a it's not an easy career to pursue um if you're doing it to work on your own projects, um, by all means, explore it. It's a, you know, I fell in love with it. It's a great, it's a great art. It's a lot of fun. So definitely, you know, learn as much as you can and make the most of it. And um, to anyone who wants to start a studio, <laughs> get ready for that. That's a, that is a, uh, quite the ride. Uh, it's a very tough career and it's very, studio is really hard to do because, it, it takes a lot and we did it really with like in the beginning with no money like not not like you see these studios you know nowadays or just like on on a higher level it's like you know you could dump they they said they say uh how do you make um a million dollars in a recording studio you invest two million <laughs> <laughs> so that that right there i think is is you know just kind of be smart about it and and uh seek out investment maybe i don't know <laughs> what are some obstacles that you went through that um, you overcame in this career that you've chosen well i mean just making your name is is really like a very big obstacle right off the bat and um you know you got to deal with long hours in the beginning especially and not making much money people do not want to pay you a lot of money especially when you first start out um so, you know, just living a lot of years with no money and, you know, like kind of struggling was, was pretty difficult. But, I mean, you know, it kind of all paid off because I got to do what I love to do. And, you know, I, I kind of knew there'd be a light at the end of the tunnel. And now that I moved here, I'm actually starting to see that light. So it's, uh, you know, it, 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 there's still obstacles always, though. Uh, that's one thing I'll, I'll say. <laughs> They're never going to go away. All righty. Mike, thanks for coming on my little underground level 44, celebrating two years. Appreciate everything that you've done for this two podcast. Years. So uh, where can people reach out to you to uh, book a session or what have you? Floor well, you is yours. Find me on Instagram. Um, I'm at Mike Gavaza. Um, and then our band is at semi underscore automatics underscore. Um, so, yeah, if you want to reach out, 
could reach out through those avenues. All my contact info is up there. So that's probably the easiest way to, to get it out there. Um, yeah, and we're playing a show February 16th. So Where? Come see us. St. Vitus. Oh, I love St. Vitus. Me too. I can't wait to play there. <laughs> love 44, My Little Underground. I'm Peter A. Don't forget to subscribe to My Little Underground anywhere you get podcasts. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at MLU Pod, and YouTube as well. Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, it's Peter underscore A. Level 44, My Little Underground. I'm out.